Well, we do create change. Everyone who engages with our work, whether they know it or not, is being changed and affected. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Last week, on the eve of America's 4th of July celebrations, President Donald Trump stood beneath the towering visages of Mount Rushmore and denounced the, quote, angry mobs waging a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. It was impossible to miss his metaphor of using the nation's largest monument as a culture war's cudgel against the waves of protesters toppling public statues from the country's problematic past. Well, the perfect rejoinder to this rhetoric of fear and division can be found in the work of the artist Hank Willis Thomas. Instead of merely destroying monuments, Hank raises up powerful new ones that actually reflect America's true better angels. And while some see the toppling of monuments as a symbolic gesture resulting in questionable real-life change, Hank has also used his stature as a famous artist and his skills as a born collaborator to generate political impact far beyond the confines of visual culture. How? For one thing, in 2016, he co-founded a super PAC called Four Freedoms to lead a get-out-the-vote campaign ahead of the 2018 midterm elections, which, as we all now know, elected a record number of women to the House of Representatives, including the first Muslim and first Native American congresswomen. Now, as an even more consequential election looms on the horizon this November, Hank, by all appearances, is working harder than ever. Just this week, for instance, Hank is partnering with Artnet on Bid for Peace, a new single-lot charity auction of one of his sculptures running through July 16th that will benefit Glitz, an organization that empowers and protects the rights of transgender sex workers. To find out what else he's up to, I'm very pleased to have him on the podcast today. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Hank. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. How are you doing on this extremely hot July day? I am doing as good as anyone, I suppose. There is an incredible amount of uncertainty that we have all begun to get more and more accustomed with over the past four years, but especially over the past four months. Hmm. And um, I'm feeling uncertain. So before we get into what you're up to right now, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about where you're coming from. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing and, and how you became an artist. Well, I think we're all artists. So I think I was born an artist and have over the past couple decades really been in a process of discovering more and more what that can mean hmm. every day. And I do have the fortune of being the son of Deborah Willis, who's an incredible person, as well as an art historian and photographer and photo historian. And I grew up at the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture, where she worked, watching her discover and tell new narratives about American history, along with her colleagues and fellow artists and peers. Hmm. And so I think I learned value of art through osmosis. I didn't really appreciate it or respect it until I was about 30. And by that time, I already had 
a BFA and an MFA. And I thought that I was just like, quote unquote, asking questions and on my own path. And then I realized I was very much following my mother's footsteps. You know, it was as if she'd been pulling the puppet strings all along. <laughs> yeah, I remember told my mother that I didn't want to be an art artist because all of her friends were broke. And, and uh, little did I know. So she won a MacArthur grant in 2000 for her work on the scholarship of photography. And she is renowned as a real force in the reconsideration of the tradition of African-American photography and more broadly, photography in America. What did she teach you about photography and how it intersects with the tangled story of this country that you still think about today? I think the, the fundamental thing that I learned from my mother is that history is waiting to be told. You know, photography and the landscape of visual representation has always been a contentious space, especially for people who were from what we now call marginalized communities, communities that weren't in control of the mainstream narrative. Hmm. And nonetheless, there were people and will always be people who are part of these communities that are making images, taking photographs, and telling stories that are in stark contrast to the mainstream narrative and also much more accurate. It seems that there's another way that your family shaped your work in in a far more tragic sense. Can you tell me about your cousin, Sangha Willis? Yeah, Sangha is my best friend and uh, big brother mentor. And my life plan was to be his backup singer. (laughs) And in February 2000, his mother went out of town and he went to Philadelphia where he grew up to look after my grandmother, saw some friends from junior high school, and they went out uh, to a club. And the friends that he was with were robbed for uh, these necklaces. And the robbers had seen my cousin with them. (laughs) And he did not have anything worth taking. So they made him lay face down in the snow and shot him in the back of the head. Oh my God. And killed him. And, uh, that was obviously a, a traumatic experience for me. It was also a life recentering because I, I literally had no plan or real dreams of my own in life other than to be a part of his and uh, had to discover who I was independently of my cousin. And <laughs> I was really shocked not only by the horror of the act, but also that the people who killed my cousin were young men barely out of their teens. And their lives were also all over after they were caught. And Mm -hmm. that the history of our country has often been tied to starving people into uh, desperate circumstances where they partake in sometimes heinous acts as a means to feel relevant and important. And so a lot of my work has been in the spirit of reuniting us with people whose society has tried to alienate us from, even ourselves. You once said that after his passing, you felt you needed to make art that could change the world in a more intentional way. How did you go about constructing a path to do that? 
Uh, I first started to look at the stories that were told and who was telling the stories and tried to find alternative methods of uh, communicating ideas. Mm -hmm. One of the most popular ones being advertising. I realized that advertising is the most ubiquitous uh, form of communication in the modern world and that it's a language that can be translated across lingual and cultural boundaries because we've all become media literate. Hmm. So I've tried through various projects to kind of use the language of advertising to talk about things that advertising couldn't responsibly talk about. Some of your best known work that really made your name in photography circles was this work with advertisements. I think one of your most powerful works and one of the first times that you decided to show something on the outside of a museum <laughs> instead of on the inside of a museum was your MasterCard ad that you changed into a kind of a retelling of what happened to your cousin. Can you talk a little bit about that particular photo and, and how you approached it? The name of the piece is Priceless and... It consisted of a photograph of my cousin's funeral with a lot of my family members in a state of mourning. And then I used the language of the MasterCard priceless campaign, which was where they would uh, really build up nostalgia about all the priceless things you could do with your credit card, like take your child to a baseball game or you know get someone a, a gift. Um, and I said that picking the perfect casket for your son was priceless and wanted to talk about how even in, in mourning we're still being marketed to and all of the uh, pomp and circumstance that we go through to try a, to prove that a life is valuable after it's been taken. One of your most famous photographs from the Branded series was of a black athlete's head with the Nike swoosh literally, as in with a branding iron, branded onto, onto his head. And um, just a little while ago, when you had a show at the Portland Art Museum, you actually flew this image on a banner outside the museum in the city where Nike is headquartered. What is it that draws you to sports? And in particular, the way that African-American athletes exist in the sports world. I think everyone has been conditioned to believe that sports are important, if only because they're a part of every nightly news broadcast and they function alongside major weather events, major political events. And a lot of the success or progress that was made for people who are traditionally marginalized in our societies have been through sports hmm. and the fact that sports is an opportunity for people who be seen as valuable is something that we take for granted. The fact hmm. that there's many multi-billion dollar industries fueled off of the labor of descendants of slaves is something that I wanted to really explore and understand more of the history and highlight ways in which we continue systems that often 
are limiting, marginalizing, and and harmful to you know certain communities through our fascination with the sports and not the actual livelihood of the people playing them or their community. So as time went on, you started to move away from photography to start experimenting with making dynamic images through monumental sculpture. That actually began around 2003 when I saw in the Bay Area where I was living an uptick in homicides, especially in certain neighborhoods of San Francisco and Oakland. And I wanted to create a memorial because I had been in D.C. and saw all these memorials to fallen soldiers and to presidents. And I wanted to make a work that really commemorated all of the other fallen soldiers, the fallen stars in our society who would not be appreciated for their contributions because (laughs) they were civilians um, killed on the soil. And so I I made a piece called Absolute 187 for the victims of homicide in Oakland and San Francisco in 2004. And it was um, made of bullets, actually. And I was really wanting to think about what it means to create a monument for people who aren't seen as valuable or important in our society. I think that one sculpture that really captures this of yours is Raise Up, which is this incredibly stirring sculpture of a row of black men with their hands raised above their heads, their bodies encased in stone, that was permanently installed on the grounds of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Birmingham, Alabama, which is the nation's first and only museum devoted to lynching. What was the story behind that piece? Well, that was based off of a photograph I found in South Africa by a photographer by the name of Ernest Cole from a book called House of Bondage, which was comprised of photographs that he had smuggled out of South Africa during apartheid before the true narrative of the horrors of apartheid had been revealed. And there was a picture there of miners facing a wall with their hands up, uh, completely nude. And I'd always felt when looking at the photograph that it was exploitive and that even by looking at the photograph, um, I was gawking in, in some way um, complicit in the exploitation of their bodies. Hmm. And I wanted to represent it and find a way to kind of ethically present it if that was possible. And so I made it in sculpture form and cropped it at their shoulders. And I titled it Raise Up. Hmm. And that was in February 2014 that I was really contemplating how uh, a gesture of surrender could be seen as a gesture of resistance. And so in July 2014, when Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri, and the call to action was hands up, don't shoot, the work had incredible resonance when I presented it in the United States and many of us in the creative field 
know in our hearts that um, our work at its best lives out of the space-time continuum and can speak mm-hmm. to the past as elegantly as it can to the future. I mean, you talk about Michael Brown and Ferguson, and, and that was the, the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, and, and really it was one kind of explosion of the kind of protest that has been building and building and has come to a real crescendo of sorts now in the wake of of George Floyd's murder. And I was reading an interview about your Portland show and it quoted one of the co-curators talking about your work saying, quote, we are often surprised by how his work dealing with race and bias becomes more and more relevant. And I wonder what you make of that of that sentiment, what, that it's becoming more and more relevant and that that's surprising. I can relate to it. I think uh, oftentimes when I've made work, I thought I was just kind of being self-involved and hmm. stuck in the past. And then my eyes were opened in often kind of really harsh ways to the fact that I was tapped into something deeper than I was even aware of when I started to investigate these things. And uh, that's why I've been such a fanatic for promoting the work of so many other artists because the work we do in our studio almost always results, and it is uh, a, a research practice. And therefore, we're all these independent researchers delving into these ideas and elements of our society that are under-researched and therefore under-reported. And I love the opportunity to explore the research of other people and then to promote it because through uh, their research, we see radical progression and evolution of our society. And so just to round out the, the monument topic... You're now working on a monument of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King, embracing that is going to debut in the Boston Common in 2022, which is a decidedly uplifting kind of, of image. And at the same time, there's this movement across the country where far less uplifting monuments are being torn down. And as an artist who's creating monuments... How are, you, how are you experiencing this moment? Well, I'm experiencing it with a lot of enthusiasm mm-hmm. for the audacity of the people who are forcing us to do things that should have been done a long time ago. Public space it belongs to the public, and therefore the public should have a say in what kinds of images and, and, and objects represent the society. I think it's also important that things get reconsidered from mm-hmm. time to time, maybe once a century, <laughs> at least. <laughs> and therefore, I feel like, yeah, this is a, a, a once in a century reconsideration of all of these monuments to men who were celebrated often as a way to put down and disrespect and disregard other people. What is it that you think art can do when it comes to creating change? 
Well, we do create change. Everyone who engages with our work, whether they know it or not, is being changed and affected. And that's the proof is that there are things that artists were talking about that were seen as radical, you know, 40 and 50 years ago, whether it be related to LGBTQ issues or multiculturalism or women's rights or wealth disparity that are mainstream issues now. <laughs> if it weren't for the artists in their studios doing their research and pro- developing their tools of articulation, there's no proof that there would be any progress. So, so we've talked about the art that you make about social injustice. Let's talk a little bit about the non-art work that you're using to, to change unjust institutions. What is the story behind your nonprofit for freedoms and why did you as an artist decide to create a super PAC of all things? You know, have you ever thought about the laws as conceptual art? The whole way we govern civil society is based around concepts. And I recognize that there are the avowed non-creative people literally designing our society through the laws that they create and the narratives that they use to, to, to tell uh, and promote those laws, and that, by and large, members of the creative community don't participate or even have an opportunity to participate in the narratives. So then how could they ever shape uh, or affect the laws? <laughs> so my friends and I thought that if we created a super PAC that was devoted to elevating the voices of artists as a form of political, civic engagement, that we could start that movement towards radically changing society. So we started to do the exhibitions in town halls and billboards because we realized that there are cultural institutions that have audiences in the millions, tens of millions, that come with an open mind. They come to be challenged. They come to be engaged. And that the institutions they go to often don't feel that they have the right or even the place to speak to the current moment politically uh, or sometimes even at all. So we have now moved from the super PAC towards nonprofit. Over the years, we've really, from an anti-partisan perspective, attempted to promote the critical work that artists are doing by framing it as political speech because we know that we say that something's political it implies that there's something at stake (laughs) i realized in 2008 when barack obama was elected as a relatively unknown person who used slogans like hope and change and really great branding as a way to inspire people and to earn the, the nation's trust and the fact that these kind of two relatively meaningless statements could be such radical tools for engagement and enthusiasm was kind of frightening to me. <laughs> and I recognized that it was no longer about money and politics. It really was about how you could tell the best story. And that's why I believe that creative people are, have central role in our society whether they know it or not, and we have a central serious responsibility to use all of our talents to contribute to building a society more like the one we want to live in. Yeah. 
Four Freedoms is an act of, I guess, creative patriotism. And we hope that it will continue for generations as a model because it's terrible to see political discourse without critical discourse. And we just hope that every creative, no matter how they frame their creative pursuit, sees their work as an instrument in changing and shaping the narratives to make a more perfect union. So this spring, right before the the coronavirus outbreak shut down the United States, you staged a Four Freedoms convention in Los Angeles. What happened there? And now that the stakes are higher than ever, how are your efforts changing in the run-up to this election? Well, everything has changed since the Congress. And that was an awesome event. We brought uh, 500 delegates and people from all 50 states, plus D.C. and Puerto Rico, to develop a creative plan of action uh, around civic engagement in an election year. And a week after we got home, my wife got sick with coronavirus. Wow. Um, And the world was changed forever. And the old rules, which we were enthusiastically (laughs) engaging in and (laughs) contemplating, had changed. And we realized that we need to start playing a new game. And therefore, the rules need to be rewritten. And with the protests, it harkened back to a, a moment of radical change in our society around 1860, when a group of people who believed in abolition came together across the nation to um, radically reimagine what was possible. And they were called the Wide Awakes. Mm-hmm. And they chose candidate Abraham Lincoln and through their creative nonviolent protests where they wore capes and did performances through kind of military style parades and singing and music um, and, and graphic design the, they inspired the movement that you know pushed our country closer to fulfilling its promise before I, I delve further into the wide awakes how, how, how is your wife? She's doing good. She was really sick for about a week, so not too long, and <laughs> recovered. I didn't get sick, grateful, um, but we are, are now counting every breath with, with gratitude. So the, the Wide Awakes, I, I did a little bit of, of delving into that after you posted a pretty gnomic Instagram post of a album cover for a band apparently called the Wide Awakes with a uh, inverted pyramid and an eye inscribed within it. And in the caption, you said that it was a group that came together in the 80s that seemed to have a relationship with Abraham Lincoln, which is very classic advertising campaign, slow reveal. I, I started delving into it. And Abraham Lincoln used the historical Wide Awakes in the 1880s as a get-out-the-vote mechanism. Is this new Wide Awakes, or Wide Awakes 2020, as its Instagram handle has it, is this also going to be involved in in getting out the vote? We hope so. It depends on if you join in. (laughs) 
we, you know, what we learned from that. And, and it's, this is my daughter's Enzi. <laughs> She's awake from her nap. Welcome to the show. Hello. Welcome to the show. So yeah, but that was a decentralized movement of people who chose to be heroes <laughs> and help make radical change in our society. And I hope that these 2020 wide awakes can do that. With Four Freedoms, we've always been anti-partisan because we recognize that the left-right binary doesn't make space for the, the rest of us who have uh, often a left and right eye, a left and right hand, and a whole body in between. <laughs> and uh, you know, many of the policies that you know, quote-unquote progressives are pushing back against, whether it be the Defensive Marriage Act or uh, mass incarceration or the you know, defunding of communities through the abolition of welfare. You know, they all happen to be democratic policies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then the Republicans are, were the party of Lincoln that yeah. allegedly freed the slaves, right? So the, it's through our kind of unwillingness to think outside the box and to challenge the status quo narratives that we get trapped in these like tit for tat arguments rather than truly engaging with the issues that we care about, which requires a lot more work. So would you ever consider, you know, getting over that line from art and politics into politics and politics? Well, I think anyone who cares at all about the future and the now should consider it. And I I, I would hope that um, Kanye isn't the only artist who's seriously thinking about the role of, of artists in civic life through their own participation and engagement. I um, will probably at some point try to run for some office. That's great. I would rather my wife do that because I think there are so many women that I know who would make much better leaders, but I would never want them to do anything that I would be willing to do myself. So I would run hoping that I would lose so that a great woman that I work with could also feel like they have to do it. Yeah. I mean, is there anything that makes you really hopeful right now? I feel hopeful because never have I known the world to be more mindful and more aware of every breath and the value of every breath and every relationship and the value and the necessity for us to speak up for what we truly believe in. I believe that's the foundation of uh, of a society that is strong and healthy. I just want to say good luck with Wide Awakes, good luck with Four Freedoms, good luck with what I hope is your or your wife's insurgent political campaign and and thank you very much for coming on the show vote for andrew <laughs> well, vote, vote for hank that's it for this week's episode of the art angle if you like what you heard you can subscribe to the show on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts also take a moment to rate and review us it will help other listeners discover what we're doing the art angle is produced by tim schneider and caroline goldstein and edited by nick long Thanks for listening and see you next week.